Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. Over the past two decades, at least, lawmakers have used scientific studies of brain development and functioning to justify education policy choices. From arguments over teaching cursive writing to the use of laptop computers in the classroom and more, the opinions of neuroscience have been privileged over the objections of teachers, parents, and scholarly experts from other disciplines. Our guest today is Jordan Jack, Chi Omega Term Distinguished Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This year, as a fellow at the center, Jordan has been working on a new book, tentatively titled, Training the Brain, Rhetoric, Neuropolicy, and Education, that considers how neuroscience is being used and misused in shaping debates surrounding education. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Jordan, you've written that neurological science is often used to justify educational policy, even when the the underlying science is somewhat thin. And you give, as one example, North Carolina's state mandate that all children must learn to write in cursive rather than simply in print or typing. Conservative state lawmakers cited brain scans in justifying this intrusive and expensive requirement. You call this reliance on neuroscience neuropolicy. And so maybe as a beginning question, why is brain research, even if skimpy or incomplete, such a powerful argument in choosing how our children learn? Well, I think any appeal to the brain functions in two ways. One is that it's part of the larger phenomenon where science is used as kind of a catch-all term that captures the sense of definitive truth, whether or not that's actually the case when you look deeper into the range of perspectives that you might find in any one area of scientific study. When we move into the policy or the public realm, it becomes the science. So the science says we should do X, Y, or Z. And I think we saw this in the pandemic The science said, first of all, that we don't necessarily need masks. That was one of the first things. Then the science shifted and we realized actually masks are protective. And that's natural because science evolves over time. But when we say the science, it makes it sound like there's one definitive opinion on things that are usually still evolving. So the same thing happens with the brain. When we say brain studies show, it's usually the case that there are some brain studies that might show some relationship between cursive writing and some measure of whether it's retaining information better or learning letters better. But it's not usually the case that the science or brain studies are univocal on that topic. So that's the first thing is that there's usually more to it. And if you dig deeper, there's almost always an evolving scientific process where more research studies emerge. And then sometimes original claims are refuted, sometimes they're nuanced, and sometimes they're rejected. And that's natural. So I think we just have to be aware of that when we're talking about science in a public context or in a policy context, that you can't just take one study or even a couple of studies usually to justify a policy change that's pretty significant. So that's one part of it. And I think the other part appeals to parents, especially those of us who are maybe teachers as well, because we want to do what's best for our children. And we want them to be productive members of society and we want them to be learning. And so when we hear, well, this improves the brain, we think, oh, well, then I must be doing this. And it's really hard to get out of that that viewpoint as a parent that your job is to constantly just improve your child 
there's a term called concerted cultivation that describes a perspective on parenting that's usually associated with mainstream middle-class or upper middle-class white culture. Um, but I think can apply to, to many different ethnic groups where the perspective on parenting is that you're doing things constantly, whether it's enrolling them in new activities or sports or music lessons or playing classical music to them as babies. And your goal is to try to improve their cognitive capacity in some way. So whenever brain science is evoked in these discussions, often that's kind of an underlying appeal, I think, that if we do this, it'll make them smarter. You know, you've built a career on studying the rhetoric of scientists and of scientific arguments, I guess I would say, in your remarkable series of books. And in this project, you're studying how neuropolicy arguments use rhetorical strategies that overwhelm more thoughtful, considerate approaches like the, some of the ones you've just mentioned. What makes neuroscience especially prone to rhetorical fallacies like overextension, false analogy, or false equivalencies? I don't know if they're more prone than other fields, um, but I think that there's a certain cachet around the brain that circulates. Scholars like Nicholas Rose have talked about this. The idea is that we now see ourselves as neurological subjects, I guess, in a way. We think about how we can make ourselves smarter, how we can stave off dementia in later years. I've already talked about how we can make our children smarter. And so there's something maybe more personal about appeals to the brain that some have likened to appeals about the body in earlier decades. So I think that's why some of the ways that neuroscience moves into public discourse is the same as other kinds of science, where in public or policy decisions, the findings are maybe overemphasized. The subtle ways that scientists outline their arguments, where they might say this possibly suggests that there may be a correlation between this activity and brain function, all of those suggests possibly maybe all those hedges drop out in, in popular discourse. So we get this study shows that yoga makes you smarter or something like that. So I think that's all pretty common. Your approach to these important and timely questions has been through one of the oldest and most profound humanistic approaches, which is rhetoric. And I'm interested in um, how you've used rhetorical analysis to unpack some of these stories. Are you finding that neuroscientists are also responsible for perhaps overstating some of the claims that their science makes? Or is this purely a case of politicians and others appropriating um, studies that are, as you put it, incomplete or in process? I think there's a few ways that this happens. One is most directly when a new study emerges, say about cursive writing, and the scientists involved are interviewed. And then sometimes even in the articles themselves, but sometimes in interviews that they give that are then included in either press releases or in popular news coverage, they'll say, this has implications for how we teach, or this suggests that we should be requiring cursive writing. So it does happen sometimes. I think more common is a more diffuse way where scientific experts are asked to serve on various policy councils or groups, and then put together reports on various topics that are then used to inform policy. And that's a little bit more of a subtle system. So sometimes you get a group of scientists who are working together and they end up with a really nuanced report. There are a few cases where if you have an interdisciplinary group of researchers coming at a topic from different perspectives, 
in my opinion, that tends to generate actually really good policy where a neuroscientist might say something, but then their argument is counterbalanced by someone who studies child development or someone who um, studies education policy. And then they have to kind of counterbalance each other, which is good. What's less effective is when a policy brief or a report comes from a group of people that's pretty narrow in terms of what their interests are. And some of that counterbalancing doesn't happen. And I think that's a more common way where some of these neuropolicy arguments end up becoming pretty influential. So in approaching this work, as I mentioned, you've taken a rhetorical analysis strategy, including some methods that you yourself pioneered in your last work. Could you tell us something about your methods in approaching this material and and what it looks like for you in your research process? In my last book, I was looking at two other common neuroscience arguments. One is neurorealism and one is neuroessentialism, which are common claims that you hear in public discourse similar to neuropolicy. So one is neurorealism is when you read an article that says there really is a buy button in your brain. Like when you go online and you see something compelling and you click that buy button, it's kind of a metaphor for what supposedly happens in your brain when you get that impulse. So that's saying something is really real is neurorealism. And neuroessentialism is sort of related, but it's when something complex gets reduced to something fairly narrow. Like sometimes you hear about the creative brain or the depressed brain as though there's these essential types of brains, which really isn't the case and at least not in that kind of simple way. So you take something like creativity, which involves, you know, being immersed in a particular setting, like at the National Humanities Center, where you're around creative people and having time and having access to materials, all those things that you need to be creative is more than just what's in your brain. So I looked at those two types of arguments and I really tried to think about how they work. And I did a few moves that I'm trying to bring to this project as well. And one is to always historicize, to go back in time. And so I called that unraveling or raveling back in my last book. So for this project, I'm trying to move backwards and I'm kind of gradually getting there. So right now I'm looking at things like uh, the Reagan era nation at risk report, which really set out the context for some of this research where there was a sudden fear that American students were falling behind the rest of the world. And that drove the accountability system that we have in place now where students are constantly being tested and assessed on things. And then I'm finding that around 2000, people who study child development and different kinds of interventions to improve children's cognitive outcomes found that most of the interventions we have, like Head Start or different pre-K programs, have some cognitive benefit, but by middle school, they fade out. And so to justify those programs, they needed some other measures that they could show improvement on. So even if the cognitive benefits seem to kind of fade out over time, our students in these programs more likely to stay in school. So then they thought, well, maybe we can measure some other things like perseverance, tenacity, grit. And so by historicizing, I'm finding out that some of the arguments I'm tracking now, such as teaching children that they can make themselves smarter through hard work, come from that kind of 2000 era moment where they realized that purely cognitive measures, at least the way that they were trying to study them and encourage them, couldn't account for or justify the kinds of interventions that they were doing. So they needed something else. So I always try to look back and sometimes I have to stop myself from going 
you know, all the way back to the beginning of time to look at these things. But similarly, in my uh, handwriting book, I'm looking at earlier arguments about cursive handwriting that emerged when people were teaching it in the 19th century. So that's one move. And then the second one is always to try to go directly to scientific sources and look at how those are working rhetorically. That helps me to avoid suggesting that the problems I'm talking about are just about popularization. So it's not usually the case that it's just journalists or policymakers who are spinning things out of control, but scientific research may either hint at policy outcomes or sometimes state them pretty outright. And then as scientists get involved in policy as members of different boards or as people involved in different kinds of policy groups, they have a more direct influence. So those are the two moves that I try to always do that I, I kind of developed in my last project and I'm trying to move forward with. I'm interested in your audience. Your writing is clear. You're able to translate what to me are very complicated ideas and complex science into clear English. It's compelling. And I can see how people like myself in the humanities or a general public would be deeply interested in and appreciative of your work. You've also written about scientific arguments in a range of different areas. You wrote a book about women scientists in the Second World War and the kind of arguments that they made. You wrote a book about how both popular and scientific arguments about autism are gendered. You've made a career of understanding and explaining the arguments that scientists make. So how is your work being received by neuroscientists? Do you have conversations with them? Do they see you as contributing to and improving their science or are they threatened? It's a mixed bag, to be honest. I was lucky enough to collaborate with some neuroscientists and actually began this whole endeavor when I met a friend's husband at a party who's a neuroscientist. And he said, I think there's some rhetoric happening in my field. <laughs> and so he explained there was a controversy going on and we, we started talking about the role of rhetoric and he was really interested in, we both did some, we collaborated on a few projects, one one or two published for a rhetoric audience and one or two published for a neuroscience audience. And so that experience was really productive. And his research team was really interested in how language works in their discipline. And it kind of prompted a mini project for us. But I think in other cases, sometimes people get the sense that I'm trying to debunk neuroscience and I'm really not. But I think whenever someone who's an outsider to your field starts talking about your field, you get a little bit defensive. So I have had experiences where maybe the message didn't come across as well as it could have, because my point is not that neuroscience is bad or that it's always misleading, but that we need to be careful about how it moves into policy. And also think about how different disciplinary perspectives and especially the humanities can help to make it better. You know, you alluded to this earlier, but this past year with the COVID-19, this past year and counting with the COVID-19 crisis, science skeptics are having a moment. Powerful political figures first denied the pandemic spread. They downplayed the severity of the illness. They rejected social distancing and mask wearing. And they are now, some of them still, opposing vaccinations. How can your critical analysis of scientific arguments, rooted in the ancient humanities discipline of rhetoric, help us navigate the narrow path between healthy skepticism and disastrous denial? One thing that I'd like to see happen more in public discussions is I guess more honest discussion on the part of scientists of what the scientific method means, because I see a lot of people saying the scientific method will definitively solve this question. And then when another study emerges that contradicts a previous one, when we have the sense that science is this definitive answer to our problems, then 
when it's contradicted or when it isn't super clear on something, then there's the reaction like, well, science just doesn't work. So they were wrong in this instance. And so I think if there's more acknowledgement that sometimes there is a finding that ends up being wrong, but then the scientific method is, is not just one study, but it's the idea that over time, another study will come and correct it or add detail to it. I don't think scientists ever have a definitive answer in the moment on something that's evolving like coronavirus was. But there's a sense that over time, we get a preponderance of evidence that supports a certain kind of claim. It's a difficult problem that a lot of scholars are tackling. Right now, there's a lot of work that is really relevant on vaccine hesitancy and how we can address that. I think there's a lot of ways that the messaging around things like the recent pause on Johnson & Johnson vaccine need to be explained in ways that will allow people to realize that this doesn't mean the vaccine is bad or that it's not effective. As my husband, who's a pharmacist, explained to me, that's a natural outcome. And if there weren't for the pressing need of having these vaccines right now, that's something that would normally be addressed in a longer term study. And by the time the drug would come to market, it would be among the many things that are listed on that information sheet you get with any drug. Like this is one of the known risks and it's there. And then we know what to do if that appears. But I think rhetoricians are really interested in figuring out how we can make claims that will help to address some of these misconceptions or concerns that people have, and also without discounting them. So I think one of the worst things you can do is just say, well, you're anti-science or you don't know the scientific method. Because a lot of people who have doubts or are skeptical of things, they do believe in science. So they don't consider themselves anti-science. So the worst thing you could do, I guess, is the kind of ad hominem personal argument. You must not care about other people if you're not getting the vaccine. That's not the case. Jordan, as a National Humanities Center fellow this year, you are writing your fourth single-authored book. That's in addition to the other projects you've mentioned, articles and so on. That is an extraordinary career achievement for any academic, let alone someone with many years ahead of her. What are your secrets to producing so much and such high-quality writing? Well, I think one thing that I learned, I started off as a technical writer. And when I was an undergrad, I knew that I wanted to combine my interest in language and English with some kind of scientific or technical emphasis because I was always interested in those topics as well. So I found technical writing and I thought that was it. And I ended up wanting to learn more. So I went to grad school and fell into a rhetoric of science class as the first grad class that I took in my field. But the training I had as a technical writer and got to practice a little bit in between undergrad and grad school on the job was to be able to produce writing quickly. (laughs) And that's what we learned to do. So not only did we study ways of presenting information clearly, but I worked in a startup, an internet startup, right around the year 2000, which was the right around the bursting of the tech bubble, actually. And so we had two writers. It was kind of a townhouse that was set up with two writers on the top, a floor of coders, and then a floor of web designers. (laughs) And we were expected to do everything from help write a business plan to generate marketing materials, to write white papers, and just being able to produce quickly kind of became a skill. So it's nice of you to say that you find my writing clear because I feel like I'm a kind of efficient writer. um, And I think I learned that from that background. You've written about and are interested in the concept of grit that is a sort of fad in education today. Can you tell us more about its origins and your insights? If you go into any elementary school around the country, probably, and walk the halls, you'll probably see 
posters, classroom materials, bulletin boards, all manner of incentives that students have that are based on their behavior. So I saw this at my daughter's school when she was in kindergarten. Her school's mascot was the Raptor. So they had this acronym ROARS. And each element of that acronym stood for some kind of behavior students were supposed to display. So it was respect, active learning, things like that become part of these acronyms. This is all based on, I think, around that 2000 moment, the idea that students could be worked on and then measured in terms of their, the way they could demonstrate not cognitive qualities, which I've talked about, but measures of their character. And so even though research on this is pretty equivocal, um, so for instance, there was a report that the United States Department of Education released, I think around 2010, that showed that most of these programs don't show a whole lot of change in outcomes based on encouraging students to behave in certain ways and incentivizing themselves to do that. They're still everywhere. And the latest iteration of this is GRIT, which is a term that Angela Duckworth coined. She's a psychologist and a related concept called growth mindset that Carol Dweck, another psychologist, developed. And they both kind of depend on the idea that students can be encouraged to show tenacity and perseverance. And in the case of Dweck, that they need to be taught explicitly that their brains can grow with effort. And then if you just tell students this, then they'll work harder. To me, this is pretty problematic that we're telling students information about their brains to try to get them to change their behavior. It's actually a rhetorical act. Like whether or not your brain is malleable is secondary to what they're really doing, which is trying to prime students to behave in certain ways. So I'm trying to trace this evolution and think about what are the effects of something like that, especially when those types of behavior are emphasized, especially for low-income students in high-poverty schools, which are often charter schools that give character report cards. And at the end of the semester, students are ranked on how well they paid attention or made eye contact during class or how respectful they were. And that a lot of these assumptions are actually race and class-based assumptions about how to behave, how to show respect, what that means, which varies a lot by culture. So to me, it's a pretty troubling imposition that the brain is being used to justify that is training students to behave in certain ways, almost to the point that that becomes as important or sometimes even more important than what they're actually learning. Thank you, Jordan, for sharing your fascinating research with me. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center. <laughs>